Today's podcast is sponsored by Artifacts, A-R-T-I-F-C-T-S. Artifacts helps you to capture and preserve the memories, stories, and histories behind the objects you collect and accumulate in life, from family heirlooms, recipes, and old photos to travel mementos, art, and collections. Start your free collection today at artifacts.com or download the app. That's A-R-T-I-F-C-T-S dot com. Welcome to the October 2022 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. I'm Lisa Louise Cook. Our featured interview this episode is with professional genealogist Rich Venezia on researching ancestors' old world towns of origin. Then in our Family History Home segment, the Tombstone Tourist is back. Joy Neighbors is here to help us safely clean our ancestors' tombstones. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, this episode is sponsored by Artifacts. And Ellen Goodwin, co-founder and CSO of Artifacts, is going to stop by and tell us more about it. In our Best Websites for Genealogy segment, we're going to be talking about how to find old family photos at Dead Fred with Dead Fred founder, Joe Bott. And then we will wrap things up over at the editor's desk with Andrew Cook. He's the editor of Family Tree Magazine, and he's going to give us a closer look at the upcoming November-December issue. As always, there is a lot to cover, so let's get to it. First up is Tree Talk. Family Tree Magazine's social media editor, Rachel Christian, has her pulse on what's trending in the world of genealogy, and she's here to do some Tree Talk. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Great to have you again. And what have you got your eye on this month? Well, since it is nearly October and spooky season, I thought I would ask our followers for their best cemetery research tip over on social. And we got a ton of good ones. People sounded off um, on all of our platforms. So I thought I would just highlight a few, and if our listeners are at all interested, there will be links to each of these posts in the show notes. So, you know, if you're interested, you can go yourself and scroll through. But people had a lot of really good tips. So just a few are our follower Maggie Switchenberg over on Facebook said that when she goes to the cemetery, she will take a three-time hay fork and a good hand trowel, and she'll probe the soil around a family monument. And by doing this, she says she's uncovered four unknown flat grave markers from the late 1800s that had slipped beneath the soil, some of them as deep as eight inches. So that was a good tip. And kind of in the same vein, Gina Philibert Ortega, who's a regular contributor of ours, over on Twitter, reminded us that just because you don't find a gravestone for an ancestor doesn't mean they aren't buried there. So she recommends seeking out other sources for confirmation. For example, you know, newspapers, death certificates, funeral home records etc. Some people offered tips on cemetery photography, specifically. Um, Our follower Christina Hunt over on Facebook said, for photos where black and don't stand in front of shiny granite stones because they're like mirrors and are hard to photograph. So that was a unique tip, I thought. And finally, our follower Bill Mansky said, bring a dozen donuts for the groundskeeper. He's more likely to show you the records room that way. (laughs) That's a great idea. Yeah, yeah. People said, make sure to bring bug spray. Make sure to bring clipboards. 
water. You know, sometimes cemeteries are very remote. Make sure your phone is charged. Just a, a wealth of information in the comment section. So thank you to everyone who sounded off. And uh, yeah, scrolling through these makes me excited to go explore some cemeteries. Oh, absolutely. And in fact, uh, later in this episode, we're going to talk to somebody who does a lot of exploring of, of cemeteries, and that's Joy Neighbors. She's going to have some tips for us for cleaning tombstones. So mm-hmm. we'll add that to our list of, of strategies and tips. Uh, these are terrific. Okay, well, great. We'll have links in the show notes for everybody listening, and you're a wealth of information. Thank you, Rachel. <laughs> Thanks, Lisa. Whether you want to visit the village where your ancestor was born on your next vacation, or you just want to find some of their records, you're going to need to know exactly the place name and the location. Professional genealogist Rich Venezia is here to help us pin down those ancestral places. Welcome to the show, Rich. Thanks so much, Lisa. I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for having me. This is such an important topic. We've got to know where people came from to be able to track them down. You know, I was just reading your article. It's called Hometown Heroes in the September-October issue of Family Tree Magazine. And in it, you said something really interesting right off the bat, which was you said that near enough isn't good enough. What are you trying to help people understand when you say that? Yeah, so when we start with our research, we're often starting with censuses, especially, right? Those are often kind of the the backbone of a lot of American research. And so if people are moving around a lot, or if you aren't exactly sure where they lived because of the decennial census, you might be able to track them around and say, well, you know, they were living in California, and then you could figure out, well, they were first in Los Angeles, and then they went to San Francisco or whatever. But a lot of other countries, especially Western and Eastern European nations, don't have similar types of these censuses, or at least not that are available to us. And so if we only know, you know, let's say the state where they're from, or the province or region in a different country, it's often really difficult to figure out um, where the records are, because a lot of times the records are going to be held at a really local level. And so unless you know that exact town or village, more often than not, you're going to have a lot of difficulty getting any records and, and, and moving your research further back in the old country because you really need to pinpoint that exact location. That's a great point. And I, I know sometimes uh, I've seen it where I see a record and it says Warsaw, but they weren't really in Warsaw. They were just really close by. Is that fairly common? Yeah, precisely. My my parents actually, um, I got to tell them, you know, the exact Italian villages where their grandparents were all from because they always th- said Naples, right? Or they heard Naples as part of their family story, but none of them are from Naples. They're all from, you know, 45 minutes, hour, hour and a half outside of Naples. But I think that that happens uh, pretty frequently in the type of research that we're doing. And even today, you know, when you meet people around the world or across the country, they'll probably won't often say the suburb of, you know, New York or Philly or DC where they're from. They'll usually just say, you know, the city that's close by. So I think that kind of pervades to today. And it's a great way to, uh, you know, remember when you, when you see big cities listed on a death record or something like that, you might need to dig a little further uh, to ascertain whether it was indeed that city or if it's someplace that's close by. Well, 
in the article, you give 16 sources that we can turn to, to try to pin this all down. Uh, Let's start with number one, which I think is excellent, which is ship manifests. Ship manifests are a great way to start when we're looking for our ancestors that, you know, came over voluntarily, that were interested in finding a better life for their family. The problem with manifests is that they weren't really used to regulate immigrants because of the laws in the United States until around the late 1800s. And so because of that, there's not always great detail on them. So if you're like me, and you have a lot of 20th century immigrant ancestors, manifests can often give you most all of the information that you need. But if you're researching earlier ancestors, uh, you might very well never find a manifest because there wasn't one created, or the manifest is only going to give you a country of origin as opposed to any place more specific. And so let's say that they they immigrated, you found it, you realize, oh, it doesn't have that specific. Number two, you mentioned naturalization records. I love these. And I just think they're an amazing resource. Tell folks about uh, what these are and, and what they might have for us. Sure. So naturalization records are often kind of the, the next stepping stone when we're researching immigrant ancestors. They relate to the process to become a U.S. citizen, um, which was never a requirement. So you may find them for your immigrant ancestors, but you may not. Again, starting in the 20th century, we see really helpful information on these records. We generally get exact places of birth, place of last residence, which certainly isn't always the same, information on ship of arrival, lots of great details. But because of kind of the lack of regulation of, of these or lack of federalization of these records, the forms weren't standardized prior to the early 1900s. And as such, again, we run into this p- situation where every now and again, you'll find a record from the 1850s that's super helpful and gives an exact place of origin and lots of other great genealogical details. But most pre-1906 naturalization records aren't generally going to give you that exact location of origin that you really need to, to go across the pond. Sounds like we have to do a lot of collecting of all the different ones. You never know which one's going to have it. I I know for me, for my great-grandparents, that was the only document that mentioned this little village of cotton. You know, everything else was much more generic and kind of the general area, but that was the one. So you never know. Right. Uh, Number three was vital records. Now that makes sense What birth, marriage, and death, right? Right. Of course. So- These are a great way to, again, collect a lot of documentation and see maybe where if you've got 10 or 15 or 20 to order, only one or two of them might have the the precise information that you're looking for. But, you know, if you're researching a family that came over at different times, if you've got, you know, uncles and aunts and cousins you want to get all of those records because it might only wind up being the last nephew's death record or something that lists the place of origin of his parents, right? And it sounds crazy, but I've seen it before where you gather together all of this documentation. And if there's 30 possible records to get, it's the last one that has what you need. But that makes it really important not to skip out on, right? Not to miss, because it could be the only thing that mentions it, especially sometimes for for earlier immigrants. Brilliant idea that the whole kind of fan principle that going out and further beyond our ancestors. So the first three we've talked about are definitely from what I think we're we're hearing here is that the more recent, 
the better, the, the more chances we have of finding what we need. Um, sometimes we're talking further back. And I see that number four is marriage licenses and, and marriage records, which typically somewhat older than some of the other available vital records, correct? Yeah. And so, of course, you know, sometimes I, I do very little, I will say I do very little colonial research, but I do know there's often uh, colonial marriage bonds that people might be able to find. Um, but also in a lot of places like in Pennsylvania, where I live, for instance, the marriage licenses in the county start in 1885, but the birth and deaths for the state don't start until 1906. So you do often find that marriage records or marriage licenses might wind up predating some of the vital records. And in some cases, like for New York City, for instance, uh, you often or you may have the opportunity to get two or more different records related to the same event, right? There might have been an application for a marriage license and then a marriage license or a marriage certificate or a marriage return. And a lot of times they're not necessarily filed together. So you might need to go digging around and looking to see if there are other records. For instance, in New York City, they have a, a second uh, set of, of marriage records. They have marriage licenses that people had to fill out prior to getting their marriage, to getting married, right, to getting their marriage certificate. And so between, I think it's 1908 and 1937, there's the secondary document that you definitely have to get because it asks for birthplace, but also asks for parents' birthplace. And that information is not listed on the certificate. So if you just stop at the certificate, you might be missing some great additional information. Hmm. Reading between the lines, I'm really hearing you saying we've got to really, in a sense, research the jurisdiction to know what did they have, what did they create, what kind of records in what process, because that varies a lot by county and by state. In uh, Here in Pennsylvania, we started marriage uh, record keeping in the counties in 1885. And actually, for the first six years, there was a second copy that went to the state so if you happen to have people married in this small time frame, you've got a county record that's at the county, the county record that was sent to the state, which should be identical, but might not be. There's also the potential for the religious record, right? Um, and if in some places they had city marriage returns as well. So there might be a possibility to find three or four or even five different records that all document the same event. But because the records were kept by different people for different reasons, there might be a lot more information on some than on others. We've been leading us through some of the low-hanging fruit, some of the, the tougher fruit to get. So many of them kind of dovetail into each other and you know lead us through a path from one record to the next until we get to the one that has it. These are all terrific ideas, and I really recommend that everybody get the Family Train Magazine. It's September-October 2022 issue. Check out the Hometown Heroes article by Rich Venezia because it is kind of like your checklist to run through. And um, whether it's easy or hard, it's worth it. And it was so worth it to have you here on the show. Thank you so much, Rich, for helping us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. I always appreciate the opportunity to, to talk to you and, and to write for Family Tree Magazine. So I'm, uh, I, I'm glad for the article. And I, I wish you the best of luck in figuring out where your folks were from and maybe eventually getting to go visit as well. Oh, yes, that would be even better, wouldn't it? <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. Do you have an unlabeled old photo that you'd like to get identified? Or would you like to find some old photos of ancestors that you've never seen before? 
Well, today we are talking about a website that can help you do both of those things. It's called Dead Fred. Here to tell us more about deadfred.com is the creator, Joe Bott. Hi, Joe. Hello there, Lisa. Thank you very much for inviting me to come along. We're so thrilled you're here. Thank you. I'm thrilled too. I don't get a chance. I'm sitting down here in my little niche, uh, scanning photos and putting them on my website so people can find them. And that's what I do for retirement now. I uh, post photos, put them on the uh, internet, and wait for someone to come knock on my door and say, hey, I know who that is. That's my great, great whatever. And it's happened already about 3,000 times since I've started. Actually, 3,167 times. Oh, my gosh. That is amazing. I have a small mountain of boxes that are full of photos and photo albums that yet to be scanned in. Down my hallway is a skid full of boxes that have photos. They were, they were uh, bequeathed to me or given to me as a, as a gift from a company that went out of business, photo company, uh, Genealogy Archive. So there's about 4,000 photos there. My wife loves it. She has me down in the cellar all day long. She doesn't <laughs> have to worry where I'm at. I'm down here doing my thing. So she's happy. I love it. I love it. Okay. Well, let's make sure we get everybody up to speed on what deadfred.com is, why you have all these photographs and people seek you out because they know that you're the photo guy and that you'll take good care of their their precious images. Okay. So pretend you got in an elevator with a genealogist and you have that, that ride up to the top floor after a long day at a genealogy conference. How do you explain to them what deadfred.com is? Sure, absolutely. Uh, Dead Fred is a photo. It's a photo of Frederick the Great, who died in Germany. Uh, a young man, but he had cancer of the throat. But my great-great-great-grandfather uh, was living during that time in Germany. Sort of the tie-in genealogy-wise. But also there's a connection to it. My family, we were sitting around a table trying to figure out what to call the, web, the website. And that photo of Fred, and he's on my website. You can see him. Just scroll down on the right-hand side and you'll see him. But we were thinking about what kind of name to call it. And that photo came in the mail. I had purchased it. I saw it on eBay. I had to buy it. It was cheap. And we opened it up. And while we were talking, my son said, one of my sons, I have four boys. One of them said, well, we just call it Dead Fred. Everybody seemed to like it. And so it was born. Here it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, that's, that's the story. So Dead Fred gets a name from a very unusual place, from a photograph. Yes. And that's what you guys do at your website. It's all about photos. Yes. Um, you're trying to reunite photos with yes. families, aren't you? Yes, I am. That's the whole purpose of it. It's this, uh, this, this whole thing is a uh, labor of love. Started out as a hobby when I was working, and I had planned to do this thing uh, for full-time when I retired, which I did six years ago. What it was is you, you take your photographs. People in the photographs are passed on. Uh, 
you can put them on there. It's free to use. There's instructions on how to post your photos. On there is a big thing that says post your photos. And click on that and just go ahead and do it. When you post your first photo, you'll receive a password in your email. And you can use that to log in and work on and manage your uh, your postings. You can post as many photos as you like. And it might take a day or two to get up on the website because I check every photo that comes in to make sure there's nothing uh, untoward because they do pop up every once in a while. And Joe, people are putting, they're putting their photos up there because they're not labeled, right? They don't know necessarily, or they may have acquired it and they're hoping that somebody will be related to that family who will want it. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, not, a lot of photos don't have any idea on names in the back. They have no places in the back, but many have a photographer's mark. And that is a, uh, gives you an idea where they were at when they were picture was taken. So there's a hint. Now, I would say half the photos on my website, 150,000 so far, uh, have some kind of identification. But there's a section there that doesn't have this, doesn't have anything at all, totally lost. And the, the chances of them being found are very iffy, but they are found. Because when people take, took their photos, they took more than one. They had copies made. And I've had people come up to me and say, I know who that is. I have that photo. He or she is with a group of people, but that's who that is. So that works. And uh, yeah. so there you go. Well, aren't there people who are really into photographs who maybe they'll pick them up at an antique store? So it may not even come out of their own collection. No, absolutely. They've, they've acquired them somehow. Yes, right? they have. They, bought, they get them from antique stores, and sometimes, don't tell anybody, but they go into uh, to diners, restaurants like the, uh, there's one restaurant that has photos all over the wall. I can't think of the name of it, but I go there for breakfast. It's a national, it's a national restaurant, and they have pictures on the wall. I take pictures, and I put them up on the, on the website, and so do other people. Uh-huh. So they go in and have breakfast or lunch or dinner and uh, take pictures. Now, they're not like Cracker Barrel, that's right? That's exactly right. That's what it is, Cracker Barrel. Yes. <laughs> so you go up and uh, nobody's sitting at the table. You go over to the table, take a picture, and you go. That's how you do it. It's simple. It's uh, take your photo, scan it, take a picture of it, however, however you make a copy, post it to the website, and hope, fingers crossed, somebody finds it. And they do. Now, listen, if I, I have photos, I, my personal collection is around 5,000 photographs. And the, uh, wow. the personal collection of the website is around 100,000, maybe, 100, maybe 80,000. Because people are always donating photos to website, to Dead Fred. So the majority of the photos that I have here are donated. If somebody finds them, if they belong, if they're physically on my premises, we'll send it to them for free. There's no charge. There's no charge to use the website. And there's a donation button. That's always welcome to be used. But we don't push it. We just want to get, uh, get the photos sent home. 
Now, I have some helpers. They've been with me since uh, started, most of two of them. Uh, we have Jeanette and Amanda. Uh, Amanda built the original database. Jeanette is a scribe. She's a writer. Daniel is a, is a technically called the code poet. He takes care of our database. If something goes bong, he unbongs it. He collects it, fixes it up. And all I do is scan photos. And I, I talk. So, okay. Well, keep up the good work. Thank oh, you, gosh, man. What a difference My, you're making. And, and you're absolutely right. It takes a whole community, doesn't it? We're all doing our own little piece and, and uh, you're playing yeah. a huge part in the photograph world. Well, thank you. I plan to keep on doing a piece, too. Our sponsor for this episode is Artifacts.com. And here to tell us more about it is Ellen Goodwin, the co-founder and CSO of Artifacts. Welcome to the show, Ellen. Hi, Lisa. Well, everybody has heirlooms and mementos uh, around their home. And that's especially true, I think, for family historians. Um, What is Artifacts and how can it help us with these precious items? You know, you're right. We have all of these things hiding in plain sight. And what I mean by hiding is there's one thing that's the object, but there's the second thing that's the memory or the story or the history that's locked inside that, that's represented by the object. So we created artifacts.com where we have this website and app. And the entire idea is to capture the story and the memories behind these objects so that they can live on. And we can pass along these memories and stories and not just stuff, so to speak. And and we do this with each artifact, allowing people to both capture the image of the object, but also the audio or video, if you would so choose, as well as any documentation you might have related to it. And we think this is really important to give people that 360 view of something. This is not just a photo. Photos actually can't talk, uh, not yet anyway. Um, It's not just a photo. This is a photo of a person, and here's what was going on, and here's who it is that's relevant to you. Terrific. So it's really an opportunity to kind of catalog as well as kind of prompts us, I think, to, to capture our memories. Is that right? Absolutely. You know, as you create each of your artifacts, you develop this private collection. And and from there, it's really up to you. We think there's a lot of value in story sharing, whether that's with specific individuals in your life, your whole family, even publicly. We have folks uh, over on Artifacts who will create an artifact and they'll share it into a collector's group or a research group. You know, maybe somebody's looking at the history of a particular region in the United States. And they'll create an artifact and they'll tell their story, their family lore about this object, but they'll share it into a group and and they kind of commiserate around this and say, oh, I had something like this and I was trying to find this out. So it really creates this sense of we're all in this together. And in the words of one user, it, it, it can become this museum to humanity. It unites us around the stories behind the objects. Well, if people want to give this a try and get started, tell us how we find artifacts and how we get started. Finding artifacts, we were just joking before we started that, you know, artifacts.com minus that second A, we like to say we're redefining artifacts. It's something that's special and meaningful to you. And so 
go to artifacts.com without that second A in the word artifacts or download our app for Android or Apple. And you can create up to five artifacts for free. We want you to try it out. We want you to share these artifacts with others and gain that experience. And, you know, if you like it, we have a couple different membership options. And we also offer concierge services. We'll come into your homes and help you get started or do a virtual session. Okay, well, everybody listening can go and visit artifacts.com, A-R-T-I-F-C-T-S.com. Ellen, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. In this Family History Home segment, we're going to do a bit of cleanup, but not actually at home. We are going to do it at the cemetery where our ancestors are at rest. And here to coach us on how to clean and preserve tombstones is the tombstone tourist herself, Joy Neighbors. Hi, Joy. Hi, thanks so much for inviting me. Oh, well, you're the perfect person to help us with this. We know that cleaning a tombstone can reveal terrific information about our ancestors, but we know that we need to do this carefully. So how do you approach the task of going out to the cemetery and cleaning tombstone? Well, the first thing you need to do is evaluate what condition that stone is in. If it's been heavily damaged, it might be too fragile for you to undertake on your own. Or maybe it just needs a little bit of gentle cleaning to get rid of some grass and dirt. But you may find underneath that there's a few more problems that you weren't seeing. Uh, When we start out, first thing I do, get rid of the dirt, the vegetation, uh, lichens. Even though they're pretty, they don't belong on those stones. What we're wanting to do when we clean a stone is to help it retain its, its authentic look. We don't want to change the stone and make it look like new we want it to have that, that vintage appeal. That's why the cemeteries are so important and, and why they pull us in like that. When you're removing something, say uh, excess grass or weeds, you can use your scissors. That's not a big deal to cut that off. But if you find out that you've got uh, a plant that maybe has their roots underneath that structure, you want to be careful because that could cause the marker to break apart, to fall, even to make some cracks in it. So you're gonna head out to that cemetery with what I call your cemetery repair bag. And that's going to have some water in it, just just regular water, nothing fancy, nothing added. We just want you to have a spray bottle so you can wash and kind of rinse that stone off. If you take a soft paintbrush, you're going to be able to sweep some of that grass clipping, some of that dirt off of the stone surface, and then see what you really have to deal with. And one of those toothbrushes just for cleaning dirt out of the tiny crevices of the engraving, that's what you want to do to be able to see what you really have. One other thing that really is useful is a plastic scraper, not metal, just a plastic scraper, like an old paint scraper. And you're just going to lift off if there's any lichens, any moss, anything that seems to be kind of growing on that stone. Again, I can't stress enough, don't ever use metal uh, tools, wire brushes, nothing like that, because they could actually scratch the surface and they're going to create these tiny fissures. And what happens is then the water and the dirt start soaking into that stone and that's going to cause a whole lot more of the damage that we don't want to have happen. 
That's a great point. And it sounds like really it's the theory of do the least amount for for good yes. result, right? And yes. to cause no damage. Do you ever use any kind of cleaning solution? The only one I would recommend uh, is used by conservatives. And we're talking about D2 biological solution. Uh, that has, I've had a lot of cemetery caretakers tell me that is what they go to. But before you get that to clean a stone, talk to the cemetery superintendent, if you can, where that stone is, or talk to some cemetery conservationist, because it may not be suitable if you have an extremely old or fragile tombstone. The one thing you don't want to do is take something from home. Don't use bleach. Don't use shaving cream or uh, like commercial spray cleaners you use in your bathroom. No household cleaners of any time of any kind, and avoid anything that has acid in it. That makes a lot of sense. What if we see that that there's lettering, there's maybe symbols on the tombstone, but we're really having a difficult time reading them? How do you address specifically that area of the stone? Over time, it really does become difficult, especially depending on what kind of stone we're looking at. That writing seems to almost fade away. Uh, The best, absolute best thing I suggest is take that cell phone, take a digital camera, and use that camera to get good photos of that stone. And don't forget why you're taking it. You want the front, you want the back, you want the sides, but take the neighbors. Those could be family members, friends, uh, workmates, church members, anyone nearby. Usually they're buried in a group for a purpose, and that can help later with cluster research. If you still can't quite pull out what you want with that digital camera, you can use a mirror, you can use a flashlight. Putting bright light on that inscription really does help bring it out. Or again, you've got that spray bottle of water, wet that stone down, makes it a little bit darker, and then it helps to bring the lettering out. And don't forget, once you get home, you can upload the photos and convert the image to black and white or invert the colors using whatever photo editing app you have. And that will help make those letters stand out a little easier to try to read. If we come across any kind of small cracks or chips, uh, you know, particularly if it's an ancestor's tombstone and we're thinking, gosh, in a couple of years, if I come back, this might be a lot worse. Is there anything that we can do now to kind of slow the damage? Yes. Part of our problem on this, we have lawn maintenance uh, that may not be quite the, the care we want. There's storm damage. It could even be incorrect repairs by even the well-intentioned sometimes the way they did it 30 years ago isn't the way we do it now. So what you want to do is you want to see where did the break occur first? If the stones is broken at the ground level and maybe just a new base, uh, but you're going to have to complete it with a socket that's going to set the stone in it. You can't just prop it up there. If the breaks across the middle of the marker or diagonal, you're going to have ragged ends. So that's going to take a little more of a professional to help you out with. My advice is before you take on any repairs, even the minor cracks and chips, you want to talk to someone who understands how to repair these stones. Because again, Back in the day, they used to kind of puddle them, which meant they would just lay them down, set them in cement to kind of preserve them, or they would go and they'd bolt the backs together. And today, that we're not as, as 
how do I say this, destructive <laughs> as we were back then to try to hold them. So search online for your area and find out where there's a conservation group that can come out and take a look and help. Many of these groups do this. Uh, it's a labor of love. They're volunteer groups. And they may be happy to come out and say, okay, this is, this is our suggestions for you to consider. Uh, the superintendent, as I said, of the cemetery, these people are great at evaluating their grave sites, and they may be able to tell you what can be done or to give you a list of the groups that might be willing to help. Excellent. Well, these are all great ideas, and I know they come right out of your article. It's How to Clean and Preserve Tombstones. We have that as a premium article online at FamilyTreeMagazine.com. And of course, Joy, I know you're the tombstone tourist and you are a blogger. Tell us where folks can find you online. Um, I have taken a bit of a hiatus on my blog. I am doing a new website and mm -hmm. I am fighting with WordPress. So <laughs> <laughs> I am hoping uh, to get everything up and going soon. Uh, right now, I am still at a graveinterest.blogspot.com. That will be changing in the next couple of months. And I'm also going to be unveiling a podcast called A Grave Interest, and that will be coming up at the first of the year. So I'm really excited about venturing out into that area. That's kind of my old stomping grounds. Way back in the day, I started out in radio. So I feel like I'm going to be able to go back home to my, to my first love and still go ahead and talk about cemeteries. Wonderful. We'll look forward to it. Oh, always good to talk with you. Thanks so much, Joy. Thank you so much, Lisa Louise. Love your show. Well, it's time to wrap up this episode, and we're going to do that over at the editor's desk. And this month, uh, Family Tray Magazine's editor, Andrew Cook, is here. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Lisa. Hey, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about uh, what we can look forward to reading in the November-December 2022 issue of Family Tree Magazine. Yeah, and you know, it's hard to believe we're already talking about the last issue of 2022, yes. how quickly time goes. Um, but we're really excited about this November-December issue. Our cover story is all about free genealogy. It's a perennially popular topic. People are always looking to save money on their research. So this is a pretty thorough guide to how to research your ancestors for free. We've got tips for using the various subscription sites for free or on a free trial, a guide to family search, which of course is the arguably the biggest free genealogy website, and a roundup of other key free websites that... Um, some that you might have heard of, some that might be new to you. And then also a reminder what our readers and listeners can do for free through us, through Family Tree Magazine. Oh, I would say free is a good way to kick off the new year. <laughs> so this is right in time. Right. Yeah, exactly. This issue also has a couple feature articles on the latest tech tools at some big genealogy websites and the big DNA testing companies. So a roundup of how to use story and photo sharing apps like MyHeritage's Deep Story and the new Instagram-like stories in the Ancestry.com mobile app, and also a roundup of the different tree-building tools that the major DNA testing companies are offering. So um, how AI can assist you in analyzing your DNA results and connecting your matches into a wider family tree. Fantastic. And I would guess you're going to have a guide in the center of this issue. What can we look forward to there? Yeah, our cheat sheet this issue is on Scottish genealogy. It's written by our own Amanda Epperson, who wrote a book on Scottish genealogy and 
In addition to that, we also have some guides to researching Germans from Russia, which is an ethnic group that I think a lot of people will have questions about. And one of our state guides to this issue is Virginia, which, of course, one of the oldest states in the Union. A lot of people have deep roots there. I am looking forward to the Germans from Russia because I have some of that in my family tree. So mm-hmm. love the cheat sheets in the center. Wonderful. Well, everybody can look forward to that in the November, December 2022 issue of Family Tree Magazine. Great to talk to you. Thanks so much, Andrew. Thank you, Lisa. I'm so glad you joined me for this October 2022 episode of Family Tree Magazine, the podcast from America's number one genealogy magazine. As always, I'm going to have the links to all the things we talked about, all the websites we visited in our show notes. Uh, you will find the show notes page at familytreemagazine.com slash podcast. And if you are listening to the podcast in your favorite podcasting app, will you do us a favor and leave a five-star review and let others know that you are enjoying the show. Thanks again for joining me. I am Lisa Louise Cook, and you can visit me at my website, genealogygems.com. And there you'll find my free Genealogy Gems podcast and a link over to the Genealogy Gems YouTube channel. Until next time, have fun climbing your family tree. <laughs>